So what I want to do is just, um, I don't know if this is a Bible study or a sermon or a testimony or a reflection, I'm not really sure, but I, uh, a, a few years ago, I found myself very drawn to a verse, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, and, uh, and I'll give you the full context of this verse in a moment. It's, it's very short. It just says, uh, David encouraged himself in the Lord, or some translations, David strengthened himself in the Lord. Uh, it doesn't say how he did it, which has caused me a lot of frustration. <laughs> there are several passages in the Bible where I'm just like, Lord, seriously, like a little bit more information right here would be really helpful. So in Luke 24, we've got this passage that says that, that after the resurrection and before the ascension, there's 40 days, and it says Jesus spent time with them and starting with the writings of Moses, he explained to them how the scriptures pointed to him. And I think, I would love to have been in that class, right? To, to understand how Jesus says, I was here. Were, were you one of the guys in the fire with, you know, Daniel's friends? Was that you? Was this the, how about this? How, how am I supposed to understand that? It would be great to have that class that Jesus gave. Uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians uh, where Paul says, when I was a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. I think there's a lot of 40 and 50-year-old boys out there, and it would be really helpful to know exactly what it means to be a man. Like, could we get a little bit more definition? What were the childish things that you put aside? What did it mean to become a man? How did you take that step? I would put this passage right here alongside that as the two that I would like the most explanation. How exactly, David, did you encourage yourself in the Lord. So um, let me give you some context here. I'm going to read this passage, and, uh, and, and I'll give you the context. I'll read the passage, and then I'm just going to reflect on some of the ways that it's intersected me and then be very specific about how I have decided that I need to encourage myself in the Lord in, in various moments and why it's been a bigger part uh, more recently. So uh, as you know, David is, is a king in Israel. So the Old Testament, if, if, if you were going to a play, you didn't know the Bible, you were going to a play, when the curtain rose for you to watch the Bible play out, I, I actually think it would start with Genesis 12. I think you would have been handed a playbill that would have given you what theologians call universal history, Genesis 1 through 11. So Genesis 1 through 3 is the critical area, creation, creation of... Of, of humanity, uh, the fall, the curse, uh, the promise that God is going to send someone, the seed of woman to redeem mankind. And so you got all that in Genesis 1 through 3, and then basically 4 through 11, just, it's, it's Cain and Abel, it's, it's uh, the Tower of Babel, it's the flood. It's just basically what you're getting in 4 through 11 is that it's really bad and we can't fix it. And then... Genesis 12 is where the curtain rises up and it says, and God reached out to this man named Abraham. He's a semi-nomadic shepherd wandering around in the fertile crescent. And he says, Abraham, if you will follow me, if you will leave the land of your fathers, you go where I send you, then I am going to make you a blessing to the whole world. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And so we're, we're watching this. Given the promise in Genesis 3, that God is going to send someone through a woman. We're sort of watching for Abraham and Sarah to have a child, but then it's obvious that Isaac isn't going to be that child of the promise, and then Jacob. And so we, we've got, in the Old Testament, we got the 
patriarchs, and then the book of Genesis ends, and we've got Exodus, and we get there, we get the call of, of, it, of Moses, and we get the revelation of God, and we get the Ten Commandments. Well, first we get the plague, and then we get the Ten Commandments. And then, uh, then we see them wandering around in the desert for 40 years. Then, of course, they end up at the Jordan River. Moses is not there. Joshua takes them in. So we got we got patriarchs, we got Exodus, we got conquest. Then we got this season of a couple hundred years of judges where the, the, the Jews existed, these 12 tribes sort of wandering around. They, they're occasionally helping each other when they got a common enemy, but they're, they don't have a king. They want a king. And they say to Samuel the prophet, we want a king. And, and Samuel says, you've got a king. God is your king. They go, we want a different kind of a king. And uh, they just no, you don't. This is a bad plan. And, and, but then God says to Samuel, yes, give them a king. Give them exactly what they want. So Saul is the first king, right out of central casting, tall, good-looking, has a good start. Then he's sort of a wreck. And then we get David. And David is, is the anti-central uh, casting. David is the anti-leader, right? So Saul was, was exactly what you expected in a king, David is from the smallest tribe. He's from a poor family. He's the last son. None of this makes any sense. He's a young boy, but God or Samuel understands that he's been told by God to anoint David. So David gets anointed to be the king. Saul is still the king. And so you got this long period of time where the, the blessing and the anointing is on David, but Saul is still the king. And David will spend this time basically trying to stay alive. As David's popularity comes up, Saul gets more jealous, and then you've, you've got a, a long segment here where, where the king, Saul, is trying to kill David, and David is fleeing. During that time, the passage that we're going to look at, during that time, David hires himself out to the Philistines as basically, you know, Crowd control is basically security, is basically a mercenary. This is like, you know, soldier for hire. This is muscle that you could get to, you know, I want you to go over there and threaten to break their thumbs and, and rough them up. I mean, this is David. You know, he joins the French Foreign Legion or the Wagner Group or Blackwater or whatever you want to say. He joins one of these groups and he leads it for a while. And and then this happens. So we're, we're picking up now. I'm, I'm going to read most of, uh, I'm going to read a good part of chapter 30 of 1 Samuel. So David is, is he's been working for the Philistines as a, uh, as a mercenary for hire. The Philistine king has just dismissed him, although David did everything that he asked him to. And David has now got this group of thugs, right? 600 men that he's gathered from the desert. These are not Boy Scouts, no doubt. And uh, he's leading this group. And uh, they've been out on a mission. And it says, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. These are David's uh, these are the, the men that David is with. This is the wives and the families of David's men. While they're out on a raid, the Amalekites come in and raid the camp and kidnap all, their, all the women and children, okay? 
When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left, left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, uh, and Hinnom and Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, and Caramel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. There's the verse. So this is a, this is a bad day. Right? Your wife and kids have been taken. And then as you are mourning and crying until you can't cry anymore, you suddenly realize everybody else is coming after you. You have been blamed. And they're saying, let's kill him. And it says, David found strength in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Amalek, bring me uh, the ephod. Abathar brought it to him and David uh, inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to Bezor Ravine where they stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and 400 men continued their pursuit. They found the Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. This is a guy that had been left behind. He's, they thought he was gonna die. He'd been a servant. Part of the cake of bread um, pressed figs into his mouth, he ate and was revived. He had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, to where, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided in the Degev and uh, the Kenesites in the territory belonging to Judah and the Degev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to the raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God, that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down. There they scattered over, along the countryside. Um, excuse me. And there they were scattered along the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening on the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything from the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds and his men and drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. So there, it goes on, and they, uh, there's, there's more to the story, but the key part here is this ends well. So David uh, is in this very low point. Everything seems to be lined up against David. He, it looks as though he's lost his family and he's about to lose his life. And, and then, in that little verse, David encouraged himself in the Lord. And then he steps forward and in this critical moment, he leads these 600 men and things get turned around. So, uh, I can't imagine any of this, in part because... Uh, I heard, I heard Bill Gates and Warren Buffett both say that they're glad they were born when they were born because their unique uh, insights and, and skills would be of, have been of no value 100 years earlier. So they were really glad they were alive when they were alive. And I look at the challenges. I'm trying to imagine the challenges of leading 
these 600 men. <laughs> and I just think, I couldn't do that. Like, that's not in my wheelhouse. That kind of testosterone leadership just seems like I would be falling short. But I look at this, and I do find myself saying, uh, how did David do this? Because I have found myself in situations where I'm thinking, okay, things seem to be going into a bad corner, and it sure would be good if I had uh, something to give here. Like, if I could be the non-anxious presence right now, if I could provide a little bit of insight into this situation, if I could help turn this crowd in a different direction and move forward, how do you find the ability to encourage yourself and turn things around? That's the question. So uh, if, if you know, if you paid attention, I don't ski at this at uh, high ground. I had a, a weird medical episode uh, eight years ago. So 0.2% of the population is predisposed, if you do a lot of distance swimming, to tear one of the four uh, arteries that, that gives blood to the brain. And, and uh, you rip it, and then uh, the lining rips, and you can have a stroke. It's a dissection. You have a dissection of the, the, the lining of, of your artery, and that can lead to a stroke. And that's what happened to me. Uh, on Good Friday, uh, 2014, and um, or 2017, excuse me. I actually don't know what year it happened, but anyway, it happened. <laughs> and it was a brain stem stroke. You likely don't know anybody who had this. It's relatively rare, as I understand it. I'm a little skittish here because I know that. Uh, Mike Walsh, who's a neurosurgeon, is here. So if, as I start to talk about, you know, the brain and all of this, I could, I could be corrected while I say it. But my understanding, okay, good, <laughs> good. My understanding is that um, this is relatively rare. It's a, it's a brain stem stroke. So it's not cognitive. It's not right or left side of your body. It's brain stem, and your brain stem is a lot of unconscious Things So balance, focusing your eyes, swallowing, touch, your heart beating, your diaphragm working, all of these kinds of things. So the people who are predisposed to this, who end up swimming a long time, swimming great distances, I was training for a triathlon, who are swimming, who tear this and have this stroke, are often high school or college athletes. And they often die because it, that's what happens. So I obviously didn't die. And I made a remarkable recovery. Uh, a number of people in the medical world, uh, including one of my neurologists, uh, said, you know, I, I didn't, I've never seen anybody that was where you were or, or now where you're at. I still have some balance issues and some double vision issues, and so I don't ski and, and some of that stuff. But uh, I attribute my recovery, and I... I, I actually, I was in denial that anything was happening, and I, at the same time I thought I was going to die, it was sort of, I had a brain injury. It didn't make any sense. But there were some dark moments in there, but I say, the prayers of God's people, great medical care, and the heroic efforts of my, of, of my family and friends, especially my wife, I came out fine. 
there were some low moments in there, but not really, um, not, you know, Lord, how am I going to do this kind of moments very often. However, when COVID hit, I found myself looking out and going, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm a little embarrassed by this now, but it's like, okay, what next? Like, what do we do? So everything's shutting down, and I remember, you know, starting to hold staff meetings every day. You can't meet, but we're having these Zoom meetings, which we've never done before, and in calling the staff together every day, we got to figure this out. We might have to cut the budget by, you know, 20 or 30 percent, and you're doing these scenarios, and how are we going to get this stuff out, and what's going to go on? And then shortly after that, we've got all the racial tension, George Floyd, and all of the, the sort of the country is tearing apart. And then we've got increased political polarization. In the state of Illinois, we're, we're watching people leave the state. And I just remember looking at this ministry and going, okay, I'm not really sure what to do. And, and being very conscious... Because I'm hearing from people, we're doing daily little devotions, and I'm hearing from people who are really not in a good place. They're very fearful. And I'm trying to get in front of people and saying, look, you're in Christ. You win, right? The, the ending is good. We don't know what happens between now and then, but, but, but in Christ, this ends well, and you can relax. And, and feeling like sometimes I'm saying that to myself. Like, okay, this is fine, this is fine, we've got this. Like, we are living better than 99% of the world has ever lived, even in the midst of this lockdown. And I, I put in the Friday update, uh, this newsletter I send out, I put out uh, today, this morning when it came out, there's a little clip of, from um, Larry Summers, the past Secretary of the Treasury under Clinton and the president of Harvard University, he said, given a choice between being a poor college student today, he was teaching college students economics, given a choice between being a poor college student today or being Nelson or John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the world 100 years ago, you live a better life today as a poor college student. You'd be a fool to, to pick being John Rockefeller. We live a remarkably good life. I live a remarkably privileged life. And so I was trying to persuade people of that. And what became obvious to me was that I needed to lead myself well first. Now, I'm making two big assumptions here. So let me just state them. Uh, the first assumption is that you are a Christ follower. And we've had a number of people talk about that. I see... Uh, Charlie Duke shared his testimony. You heard some, a lot from, from uh, Dr. Cook about what it means to be a Christ follower. You heard this, this from uh, Jason. I, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you're a Christ follower. Not that you think Jesus was a great moral leader and a wonderful life coach and, and a wise sage, but you're taking him on his terms, so he's the son of God, he's the savior of the world, he's Lord of all, and that you have made that decision Bruce was just talking about it. You made a decision to put your weight down. You're with Jesus. You have, you have the great exchange. You just had a song. The great exchange comes from 2 Corinthians 5, 21, right? It means we just don't get our sins forgiven. The great exchange is we give Jesus our sins. He gives us his righteousness. And so we are not just neutral, right? We have, the, we have credited to our account 
the righteousness of Christ who has fulfilled the law. And so I am assuming that you are a Christ follower, that the great exchange has happened. I am also assuming that you understand that spiritual growth requires effort more than most people give it. We do not wake up and discover that somehow, accidentally, while we were not paying attention, we got into great spiritual shape. Any more than we wake up and discover, while I wasn't paying attention, I got in shape, I lost 20 pounds, I learned Spanish, and I cleaned the garage. Right? Those things don't happen without a plan and effort and, 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 and concerted effort at the task over time. So, <clears throat> a few months ago, I was um, with a friend who had just retired. He was the pastor of one of the 10 largest churches in the U.S. And we were talking about our frustration at how many people in the congregations of the churches we were leading weren't growing. How many people were doing the first year of the Christian life over and over again. And so 20 years in, they weren't 20 years down the path towards being closer to Jesus and more like Christ. They just had gotten really, you know, they're in a deep rut on year one. They're doing it over and over and over again. But that's not all we talked about. We also talked about our uh, confusion over our own lack of spiritual growth. So he so he's the pastor of one of the largest churches in the U.S., and he'd written a book about his anger and his inability to deal with his own anger. Right? So this lack of spiritual growth is not new. Paul writes about it, again, in 1 Corinthians, and he expresses his frustration that he cannot say to the Corinthians what they need to hear. He can't give them the deeper truths because they are babes, mere infants in Christ. They can't take solid food. They can only get milk. And so this has been an ongoing challenge. There's a lot of people who live year one of the Christian life over and over and over again. So why is it so hard to grow? The Bible would suggest that um, there are a number of reasons. I mean, we talk about the reality of evil. We talk about how devastating the effects of the fall are. It would say other things. Recently, I have been um, educated by, the, by a lot of the new sort of insights about how weak our will is, our ability to just sort of muscle through something. I, I thought that our will was sort, of like, uh, was sort of like a muscle, and if you exercised it, it would get stronger and stronger. Turns out our will is sort of like $5, and if you spend it, uh, you know, on a, not, not eating you know, chocolate cookies, then you don't have it available to get up early in the morning because you've already spent it. So our will has to be directed at building good habits that are going to take us in the right direction. I think there's a lot there for us to think about. But I've been, uh, I've been most personally impacted by what I would say is the volume and velocity of culture. Now, lots of people talk about culture and and these can be conversations that, uh, in which culture is bad and, and you, you just get a lot of, uh, you got people trying to pull you into the doom loop and talking about how everything is going wrong. And, and, 
I get, I get all that. I think there's a lot of things that are going wrong. There's a lot of things that are going right. There's a lot of things that are going wrong. And, and there's a time, and we've got to figure some of this stuff out. That's not what I'm talking about. So what I, what I was sort of hit with during COVID and all the changes that were going on, what I was trying to process, sitting at home, and I mean, it was, it, you know, it was Sherry and I, I mean, that's, that's sort of delightful, okay? Cancel all your meetings, stay at home, our kids are gone. We just said, hey, we won the, we won the COVID lockdown lottery. I mean, we got... Like, we're not worried about money. We're not, we're, not taking, we're not locked in a small house with a bunch of kids and, you know, a bunch of animals and, and a lot of stress. So we won the COVID lottery. But at the same time, I'm just trying to keep track of what's going on, and it just felt like all the data points were coming in too fast. And I, I, I could feel a little sense of anxiety, like, what am I going to do, and how am I, I going to learn all the things i got to learn in order to do this? And so I think that uh, the way it sort of came into clarity for me was to say uh, there's culture, which can be good or bad, and it's generally just mixed, but there's the, there's the, the volume of culture and, and the velocity of culture. And... You know, in the 1800s, the joke is if, if uh, you missed your section, you missed the stagecoach, you could catch the next one in a month, and life would be fine. And today, we miss our section in the revolving door, or our, uh, our cell phone doesn't power up really quickly, or, you know, we, our laptop is taking a while to boot up, and we're like, I don't, I don't have time for this. Like, I'm, I'm behind. Like, I, I, this has to happen. And, and, and then you just add all the things that are happening and all the data points that are coming at us right now. And it is, again, it's the volume and velocity of culture. And if our ability to, to paddle a canoe was we can paddle a canoe in a current that's five miles, then we got five mile per hour strength. And when suddenly the, 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 the stream that we're paddling across isn't, isn't going at five miles an hour, it's going at 35 miles per hour, we're just getting carried downstream. And we're, we're in trouble. And so the way it felt to me was, I had to make sure that, that the, my inner world was stronger than the outer world. And the outer world had gotten stronger. And so I had to, to some extent, play more defense, but really what I needed to do is I needed to play offense. And I had to figure out what that was going to mean. So for a while, when I, as a pastor, I had this uh, saying, I would challenge people to the, take the 10 plus 10 challenge. So I said, read the Bible for 10 minutes a day, pray for 10 minutes a day. Take the 10 plus 10 challenge. So I dropped that about three years ago because, it. first of all, I never loved it, uh, I, I mean, and I would say, if you're doing more than 10 minutes a day reading the Bible, don't go backwards, right? But I thought, I thought 20 minutes was more than most people were giving it, and I thought that if I could get people started, you know, it would sort of fuel itself. But I stopped saying it because I realized I, I no longer felt like 10 plus 10 would work. And I was really increasing the amount of time I was spending in personal devotional practices. 
And I just thought, this is what I have to do. The current is faster. So um, what I want to share is, uh, is my sort of new routine. So it's two years old, three years old, whatever. And I'll, I'll be honest, um, I haven't talked a lot about my personal devotional life because one, um, in our house, it's decidedly second class to my wife, who has a much, much more discipline and, and has. And so I sort of feel a little bit, you know, like, why would I talk about what I do when she, what she does has been more, more substantial over the last 38 years? Secondly, it's fluid. Uh, I continue to change it. Um, third, I don't think we've all got to do the same thing. <laughs> However... When I was talking with more and more people and I would hear that they would wake up and the first thing they would do is look at their cell phone and they would, they would be looking at the news or they would be looking at social media and, and then that, they're, you know, that they've turned on the TV and they're watching whatever, Morning Joe, or I don't even care what they're watching. I'm just like, no, no, you cannot, you cannot do that. And have the kind of inner world that is going to be able to sustain the current of the outer world. You have to manage yourself. You have to lead yourself. You have to figure out how you're going to strengthen yourself in the Lord. So um, here's, uh, here's my daily routine. And um, again, it, it's, it's changed over the years, but this has sort of been... This is the architecture that's always been in place. I just sort of expanded it. And for a while during COVID, it was, a, it was, a two, it was, it was the best two hours of my day by far. I'm down to more like an hour in the last year, partly because I don't feel like the current is as strong as it was. But so the first thing I do is pray. So I start the day early, which is really all about managing the night before. Okay, I'll say more about that in a second. But I start the day uh, early, and the first thing I want to do is I want to pray. And so the alarm goes off, and I, it's not, I, I don't get this 100%, and please don't take any of this as, you know, a legalistic path that you got to follow. But when the alarm goes off, what I want to pray is, is just thank you, Lord. Uh, I learned a prayer from, uh, that John Stott wrote, and I saw it years ago, and I committed something like it to memory, and so this is often the prayer that I pray. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, morning, Spirit of God. Heavenly Father, I praise you. You are the creator of everything everywhere. Lord Jesus, I praise you. You're the Savior of the world. Spirit of God, I praise you. You are the sanctifier of God's people. Heavenly Father, I pray that today I can live in your presence and cause you, bring you joy. Lord Jesus, I pray that today I will follow you. I will die to myself, pick up my cross, and walk after you. And Spirit of God, I pray that today I would yield my life to you and that you would ripen your fruit in me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Holy, precious, triune God, one God in three persons, have mercy on my soul. That's that sort of the prayer that I pray or the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes I'm praying this as I shuffle towards the coffee pot. Sometimes I get down on my knees and, and pray, but the first thing I want to do is I want to pray. The second thing, this again is after I go to the bathroom and after I get a cup of coffee, the second thing I do is I sit in silence. So, and when I say sit in silence, 
I'm not praying and I'm not meditating. Okay, so there's prayer and there's meditation. And I'm just trying to not think about anything. So already the popcorn popper is popping, right? And so I got, I got ideas and, I'm, and, and, and there's a, I'm, in, I'm in an initial battle and I describe, and you're all gonna get, you're gonna get a mason jar full of muddy water and I have one uh, sitting on my desk, and, and I will occasionally shake it and say, this is the state of my soul at this moment, right? And, uh, and I, just, I just sit there, and I try not to think about anything. And the, the, the popcorn popping will slow down. Now, I have a piece of paper next to me, and I write down, uh, call so-and-so, Remember to do this, right? I mean, these things that I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to hold on to. I just write those things down and I let this settle. And it can be one minute, it can be five minutes. Uh, I've, I've got a friend that, you know, he started and he started with like 30 minutes and I'm like, dude, you're psycho. I could not do 30 minutes. But uh, I let it sit. So by the way, this uh, you're gonna get um, you're gonna get a mason jar that has some dirt in it, and the the initial plan was to uh, tell you, go fill this up, and when you leave tonight, you'll get this. Go fill this up with snow from high ground, and then um, you'll have this to sit on your desk, and you know you can say, oh yeah, it's high ground snow, and yeah, it means something to me. I got this idea five or six years ago. My my son was a so I guess 10 years ago, my son was a, a student at University of Iowa, and his roommate worked at the um, Iowa City water treatment plant. So I asked this kid, I go, so what, what, do, you, what do you do at the water treatment plant? And he says, oh, it's fascinating. He goes, so we got this big, huge tank. It's like you know, four giant swimming pools, and it's right next to the, to the river, and there's these big valves, and we open the valves, and the, and the water from the river flows into this big, huge tank. And then we let it sit there for like two weeks, and all the debris settles down to the bottom. And he goes, and then we open the valves at the other end, and you drink it. And I said, wait, what? Like, wait, like, what about the carbon filters and the reverse osmosis and the fluoride and the, you know, the pH balance and all that? He goes, yeah, we don't do any of that. We just let the water settle. And he goes, you know, we're supposed to do some of that, but Wally, he's got, you know, he's been there for 30 years and he doesn't want to do it and nobody can fire Wally and so it just doesn't get done. So, <laughs> so I recommend bottled water if you're in Iowa City, just as a, as, but, but I filled up, I filled up a mason jar because I just thought I want to see how this works. And so I filled it up. And I let it sit for, for two weeks, and it looks really, really clear. And then I got this idea of, of putting a little bit more mud in it and shaking it up, and I thought, this feels like my heart in the morning, and i got to let it settle. And uh, so I started to fill them up with Mississippi, because I, I grew up, Kent and I grew up on the Mississippi River. So I'd fill it up with Mississippi River water and bring it back, and I was handing it out to guys. And uh, I thought, high ground snow would be good. Here's the problem. And you, you'll get it, and you can fill it up with snow. I mean, I think that would be sort of quaint. And, but then you gotta, you're going to have to be sure you don't try and take it on the plane. 
right? And if you do, you're going to have to be sure that you've checked that bag because it's, it's a liquid. So whatever you want to do. But uh, I just sit there for five minutes, and I just, want, I just want my heart to settle. So I'm writing down the things that I think I've got to remember, and then the, it, the popcorn popper does go off. And then, um, then I, I pray uh, a psalm. And the book of Psalms is 150 chapters. Most of them are prayers. And I just, I just go, I start in one, and I go to 150, and then I go back, and I just, I just do that. So I read a psalm. Then I read a chapter out of one of the Gospels, and I just start in Matthew, and I go till I get through the end of John, and I go back to Matthew. Change the, uh, change the, the translation, or for, for a while for to shake things up, I'll write out by hand 10 verses, uh, just because that slows me down. I just write 10 verses every day, and I, people say, well, what, do you, what do you do with it? Have you written it down? Throw it away. It is, I, if I want to read it, I'm not going to try and read my bad handwriting. I'm going to go back to the, to the scripture, but I'm just writing it down to slow myself down. And then I also read uh, a chapter from another um, Old Testament book or New Testament book, and that varies. And of course, there's all kinds of Bible reading plans that will take you through this. That it'll do it for you. It will, all you have to do is press the button, and it will read it out loud for you, right? There's just no excuse. You've got all kinds of different plan, plans. Do what works for you. Um, then, so that's, you know, that's taken 15, 20 minutes. Then I spend uh, another half hour in what I call offensive reading. So in his book, Ordering Your Private World, Gordon MacDonald said there's two types of reading. Defensive reading is reading you're doing for an assignment. It's reading you're doing because you need it. You're taking notes. You've got to be attentive to this. You're going to do something with it. Offensive reading is reading that you have no objective for other than you're just trying to learn, and, and it's a long-term development plan. So I actually have four different books that, that I'll read. These are the books that, that, are, that take a longer time to read, right? If you're going to do it right, you're going to read, I don't know, you're going to read a paragraph, you're going to read five pages, but you're not going to read a lot. So I, I've got four different ones, and they're, they're quite different. And I go through them. Sometimes I go through them twice, and then I go to other books. But I'm doing offensive reading, and then I pray. So I'm sort of towards the end of, um, of that, and I got prayer lists, and it divides up according to a variety of things. But, and by the way, some of the things that I pray for are the things that came that I wrote down when I was in that silence time because it's like, oh, what's going on with whoever? And I'll go, I should call them, or I'm going to pray for them, or whatever. I just write it down. So that's what I do. And during COVID, for a while, it was a couple hours a day. It's down to about an hour now. Some of you think uh, I'm crazy because I do way more than you could ever possibly imagine doing. Some of you are saying I do more than that and have for 10 years. Look, um, if I, I, I try to say if you've got, you know, especially to, to young moms, I'm saying you cannot think that you, you're going to get this time. But... There are some other thoughts that I bring to this, and this is what I'll, I'll close with. Five more thoughts to just sort of guide how you should think about putting yourself in a position so that if everything is going wrong and the people around you want to kill you, right, 
you can find strength in the Lord. You have positioned yourself. Again, I should say this. My goal during COVID was to be the person that could provide energy, not take it from people. And again, there's a lot of people that are saying everything is bad and everything is bad and the world's falling apart. And yes, there's, there's a lot of that is, is happening. But you don't need your leaders to say that. <laughs> what you need from leaders is hope and a reminder that God is good and this is under control and you're fine and we're here and we're gonna get through this together. And, and what I found was I needed more energy because there were cheap shots coming my way. And there was, again, it's the polarization and some of the ugly stuff was going on. I just found I needed, I needed to leave my office in the morning, my study in the morning, ready to give. <laughs> my identity had to be shaped by God's love in the gospel so that I could be somebody who could have a bad day without lowering the temperature in the room. And I think that's what's incumbent upon leaders. I'm not saying I always did it. I'm just saying I recognized during parts of the last two years that I had to be much more intentional about leading myself first if I had any hope of leading well with others. So five more things that I'm saying about sort of how I think about putting myself in the right position. Number one, when it comes to uh, understanding What's going on? The goal of reading the Bible is not information, it's formation. Right? The goal that you're after is not knowing things. It is being formed. And, uh, and what, I, what I think of is you want to change the background music, that your default music that's playing in the back of your head. What do you think about when you're not thinking about anything? It's usually some mix of and behind, financial anxiety, uh, last week's college football scores, you know, whatever. There's just a whole lot of other things. And, and I'm, I'm trying to change the background music in my head so that it's much more about God and his goodness. Secondly, I do think that you probably have to go out of your way to protect sometime in the morning. And that generally means you have to go to bed earlier the night before. Because being able to get up and to spend an hour, the house is quiet, uh, and, to, and to sort of start that way means that uh, you, you have to be able to get up earlier. And so uh, when, I was, uh, when I was about 28, I read or I heard, it was either in Ordering Your Private World or I heard McDonald say it, that when he was about that age, he decided, he realized that any time he was spending awake after 11 o'clock at night was likely spiritually neutral at best. And that any time he spent up in the morning before 7 a.m. was likely spiritually positive. So he just said, I'm going to bed earlier and I'm getting up earlier. And I just said, I remember saying to Sherry, I'm getting up tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock. She's like, you are like, what? another bad idea that will, won't last a week. But it's been, you know, 30, 33 years. And at some point, you can use your will, your, your limited will, to establish patterns that become ruts, that become easy. It doesn't take any energy for me to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I've, I've done it. 
pretty much 365 days a year because it's if you go to bed at 2 one night and 10 the next and you're getting up at 7 and then you're getting up at 11 and then you're getting up at 3, yeah, you're, 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 that doesn't work. So I just, I'm pretty consistent about going to bed 10, 10.30, getting up at 5. And that to me is a spiritual, part of my spiritual practices because I need to start the morning in a good spot. Third, I think you need to understand that you need to read the Bible fast and slow. So some people read the Bible, lots of people seem to read the Bible slow. They read a couple verses, they do a Bible study, deep dives into sections. And that's great. But you also need to read big sections of the Bible to get the the flow of what's going on, to understand redemptive history, to see, see the big picture. And so I think that that's missing with a lot of Christians today. Um, you need to understand that reading the Bible is not enough. Uh, Jesus said to the people who had memorized the Old Testament, have you not read? <laughs> have you never heard? Of course they'd read. They actually, in one sense, thought that they believed. They just weren't doing it. Right? So it's not, it's not reading, it's obedience that we are being called to. And Also, of course, there's a lot of other habits of grace that we have to cultivate besides just Bible reading. I mean, there's there's serving, and there's giving, and there's generosity, and there's church, and there's all kinds of other aspects of the Christian life. I've majored on the one that that became the most important for me. But here's here's my final comment here. Um, It occurred to me at one point um, and I, I don't know if this was an original thought to me or I heard somebody else say it, but it occurred to me that I was around a lot of people who were actually disciples of the news, not of Jesus. They were spending a lot more time, and whatever end of the radio dial you want to talk about, you want to talk about the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or Fox or MSNBC, I, it doesn't really matter to me. If you're spending three hours with with three hours with a, a, a talk show radio host and 10 minutes reading the Bible, then you're a disciple of that talk radio show host. You're not a disciple of Jesus. I mean, we have to manage our inner world. And it has to be particularly strong right now because I think the volume and velocity of culture continues to pick up pace. And I think the world needs men and women leaders and others, but room of men needs men who are going to uh, be leading themselves well and can be like David in that critical moment when everything is going wrong and the the plan of the crowd is let's kill the guy, which is going to solve nothing, right? To be able to say, okay, I've got my wits about me again. Okay, Lord, what am I supposed to do? This is it. Okay, here we go and step forward. We, We need more of those leaders. So, May the Lord have mercy on us. May we become those kinds of leaders. And as you're leaving, don't forget uh, your mason jar with dirt, which we had to buy. I just thought we'd just find dirt. Didn't think there was going to be like a 60-inch snow base. We couldn't couldn't get the... Do you have moon dust that we could put in this? Uh, I don't have any moon dust. They wouldn't give me any. Okay. Yeah. How do I handle 500 emails a day? Well, 400 of them I, I send off to other people, or I just delete. But I have, I have, 
I have tried to develop the, the discipline of, of dealing with them uh, quickly and at once and never dealing, never reading it without dealing with it. It's got to uh, read it. I got I to send it somewhere. And yes, that's part of what can make me anxious. I can admit it's, it's all this stuff coming in. At some point, you got to shut down some of those things and say, I'm, I'm not going to know that. And that, that's hard. That is, that is really hard to say, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to develop this. But this is what I think the Lord is calling me to focus on. Okay. Thanks, man. <laughs>